Welcome to episode three of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. Today's episode is all about surviving a life-changing injury and how this doesn't have to be the end, but can instead be a new beginning. A van man pulled into my lane on the motorway without checking over his shoulder that I was there first and I didn't have anywhere to go. I was awake through the entire accident. It didn't knock me out. I hit the ground. I pulled my arm in, sent me into a bit of a spin. I hit the central reservation with my legs, um, snapped just below the knee. It's time to be your best version of you. No fluff, no nonsense, only practical ways for you to be your own extraordinary. We learn from the real stories of real people who've been there and survived the life challenges that we all face. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. Welcome to the rediscovery of me. I'm your host, Holly Hartley. So holy moly, here we are already on the heady heights of episode three of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. It's really great to have you here. But before we start today's episode, please make sure that you subscribe, click like and leave a review. My guest on today's show is a woman with a story about triumph over adversity, and that's probably an understatement. In 2004, at the age of 31, Hazel was on her way home from work in Manchester when she suffered a life-changing injury as a result of a motorbike accident. Despite their best efforts over a fairly lengthy period of time, doctors were unable to save her leg and Hazel sadly had the lower portion of her left leg removed. Eight years later, and a chance reading of a Facebook post, she discovered archery and the rest, as they say, is history. Within two years, she had made her international debut for Team GB. She's had stellar performances in the World Archery Championships and has secured three bronze medals already in the European Para Championship team events in 2014, 2016 and 2018. This year, she won her first individual gold medal in Dubai. Today, she's ranked number seven in the world. She's at the peak of her career and this season's performance is a career best. She's just secured a place for Team GB in the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics. Now she needs to claim that spot for herself. She is, she says, just an ordinary girl from Manchester. Well, I'm not so sure. And Hazel Chasty, it is so amazingly wonderful to have you sat here with me today in my little study. Your little study is absolutely crammed full of information and I feel like it's a library. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> it's the workings of a madwoman, that's what it is. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning then. Tell us a little bit about your past and where you grew up. I grew up in Edgley in Stockport and went to a little school called St Matthew's, which I absolutely adored. Then on to Kingsway in Gatley and Cheadle and... After getting married to the love of my life, Richard, we moved to Glossop and I now live in the hills. In the Peak District? Yeah, and I was a picture framer for most of my life. Wow. After my accident, I tried to continue with that. It wasn't really possible for tottering about on one leg, carrying mm. big sheets of glass and mirror around. Mm -hmm. So I looked for something else to do and I did dog... Oh, I had a little shop that was called The Potting Shed and it was a tiny little room and did hanging baskets for people for a couple of years. That sounds nice. It was lovely actually. My mum did most of it if I'm honest. She has the green fingers of the family. <laughs> she has um, a shove it in, it'll grow or it won't type of attitude <laughs> and it usually does for her which is fab. <laughs> and then I learned to be a dog groomer and opened a dog grooming salon in my garage for a while. I loved that as well. So you've had a wide and varied past. Yes. Uh -huh. I was going to ask you, you know, what did you dream of? before your accident but it seems to me that you are very much kind of seize the day live life type girl. I've always been a little bit creative so any job that was creative I loved and all three of those in different ways were creative jobs so you know bespoke picture framing definitely ticks the box doesn't it gardening definitely is creative mm -hmm. and even shaving dog bottoms is a little <laughs> bit creative because you've got to make sure <laughs> that it looks the part <laughs> don't want to be embarrassing the dog do you? <laughs> Well, I've never really considered that as a creative discipline, well, Hazel, but as you've said it like that, think I guess about, it has to Think be. about a poodle job, you know, yeah, you've got yeah. to have it right. You can't have one ear wonky. I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> 
So then, so life for you, you know, regular life, growing up, doing the normal stuff that we all do in our yeah, late twenties, early thirties. Absolutely normal, yeah. And then really quite dramatically, your life changed yeah. overnight. Can you describe for us the day of your accident and what you can remember? It was an ordinary day at work, I was picture framing. And I left work a little tiny bit earlier because my dog was at the vet's and I wanted to go and get home, get the car and go and pick the dog up from the vet's. And a van man pulled into my lane on the motorway without checking over his shoulder that I was there first and I didn't have anywhere to go. I was awake through the entire accident. It didn't knock me out. I hit the ground, realised my glove had come off, remembered a little bit of advice a fellow biker friend had given me to try and ball up if you could, try and get into Mm. a ball and protect your limbs. So I pulled my arm in, sent me into a bit of a spin. I hit the central reservation with my legs and landed on my back with my feet underneath my bottom, um, snapped just below the knee. Gosh. So he pulled in front of you? Yeah, we didn't touch, but I had to slam my brakes on. It was a little bit drizzly that day. You know, I could have knocked on his back doors. I don't know why he changed lanes, because there wasn't anything in his lane in front of him either. I distinctly remember calling him a naughty name as I was coming off my bike, (laughs) as you would. And then people were all around me, surrounding me, going, you're all right, mate, you'll be okay, mate, ambulance is on its way. I was thinking, why do they keep calling me mate? I am clearly a woman. I am a big girl. But He's covered in leathers. You're in good company. But in, you know, in a full leathers, boots, jacket, mm. helmet, mm. no one can tell what sex you are. And you're going to assume a biker is a guy because, you know, mm. big percentage are. And I pulled my visor up and said, I'm a girl. And all of a sudden, hands were helping me, you know. They were supporting my legs. They were stroking my cheek. And so the response of the people that were with you changed when they found out Completely different. Female. It was stood above me going, you're all right, mate, to, oh, my God, poor angel. She's... Wow. And do you recall the accident? Can you... Kind kind of see things I can see tarmac rushing past my face realizing my glove had gone pulling my arm in and then a lot of spinning and landing on my back and looking up into there my legs didn't feel sore I just knew I couldn't put my thighs down the worst thing that hurt was um, my right thumbnail was flapping around at the quick and I'd had my nails done because it had been my birthday a few days earlier and first time I'd ever had that type of thing done you know the acrylic nail job and I just realized that this thumbnail was flapping around and the paramedic kept putting my hands across my chest and I kept going my nail ow my nail and I remember him saying you've got more to effing worry about than your nail love (laughs) (laughs) so that whole time in terms of the pain the pain came from this small thumbnail but actually from your legs nothing Wow. So then you were put in the ambulance and you were taken off to the hospital. I was. And my husband was coming home from work at around the same time, followed the ambulance down through all the traffic, thinking, oh, you know, I've got a great ride through all this traffic that is all backed up on the M60. And then realised it was actually me. And he followed the ambulance to the hospital. Right. And I remember the paramedic kept calling me Tracy. (laughs) And I don't know if he was doing it on purpose to try and keep me awake. Because he was going, stay with us, Tracy. And I was going, my name's Hazel. (laughs) (laughs) stop calling me Tracy and once they said right we're here at the hospital I clearly remember thinking I'm all right now Mm. I can go to sleep now I'm all right I'd lost an awful lot of blood so I was feeling quite sleepy were you afraid no I was never afraid I was pretty sure I'd broken my legs Mm. but I wasn't scared so you didn't at that point consider your own mortality no I never for one minute considered that yeah. And my family did, obviously. Poor Rick in the state had managed to contact family all over the spread around the country and they'd all converged on this hospital. Mm-hmm. And I can remember faces going past me, sort of these ghostly, pale, crying faces going past me, giving me a kiss on the cheek and me drifting in and out of consciousness. Never felt any pain, just, you know, woke up to various faces. I remember my mum crying over me and me saying to her, I'll be okay, don't worry, I'll be okay. Because I'd never once considered that this could be the end. Mm -hmm. I remember the surgeon saying, you may not wake up with both legs. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I remember is waking up in the ICU unit after a couple of days, apparently, and saying to a nurse going past my bed, how many legs have I got? And Mm -hmm. she lifted the sheets up and counted them for me. (laughs) One, two. And I thought, oh, nice. That was good then. That's okay. I'm fine. Never considered that, you know, one wasn't going to survive. And even then, when... You know, after weeks of them trying to keep this leg alive, the foot was great, 
but they kept having to debride the calf muscles because it was dying so mm-hmm. they kept needing to scrub it back of the dead tissue and they just they couldn't keep it as viable tissue so a surgeon came in and said I need to speak to you about something quite serious I'll wait till your family's here and I knew what he was going to ask me and I knew instantly what my answer would be and he said you know we can try and save your leg by using muscle from here and there and tendons from this and skin from that and I said just take it off Mm. and you could see the relief in his face that he didn't have to try and convince me that the best option would be amputation because I already knew that in my mind I was damaged other than my nail flapping around I was damaged from the knees down but from there up, I was fine. Why would really? we start taking tissue from yeah. everywhere else and damaging that to save one leg when it was perfectly reasonable for me to have a prosthetic leg? I knew that, you know, lying in hospital for three weeks, I knew that was the best option. That must have been a very traumatic three weeks. The most traumatic part of it was I could smell my leg, which I know is pretty gross, but I knew that the leg was dying because it just, they put me in a private room mm. because I must have stank the ward out and I knew it was a, this most horrific rotting meat smell and it was coming from me and I almost wanted them to take the leg before they asked me if they could yeah because I thought I'm gonna walk better on a prosthetic than I am on this damaged leg that ability to be kind of so dispassionate and pragmatic about something that is so fundamentally life-changing is that a skill that you've always had or is that something that suddenly became clear in the situation that you found yourself in I think I've always just bimbled through life like any of us you know we're out on a Saturday night and we go to work on a Monday morning and I've always just been a perfectly normal person but in those three weeks lying there with a dead leg I became dispassionate towards that particular leg. It was like, Mm -hmm. that's not me. Mm -hmm. That's not part of me. That's dead. The rest Mm -hmm. of me is alive. Take it away. That was my reasoning. But my other leg was severely damaged as well. And I had foot drop on the other leg. So it's like, is that foot going to work? Because it's foot drop. Because I'd just been in bed and my foot had just fell forward like you do when you relax. Yeah. The muscles had given up on that leg. They'd been in that position for so long that I couldn't lift my foot up. And that was going to take some real hard work to just get that leg working properly. Because obviously that leg had been snapped through. That knee had been dislocated. So I had, well, that was going to be okay. This leg was going to work. I knew I could work on that. But the other leg was just like, there's no point in trying to save this leg when I've already got one to work on that's going to be hard work. This one is dead. Just take it. Yeah. And I don't know where that toughness came from, but... It just came. It's funny, you know, you you spoke before about seeing relief in the surgeon's face when you said the decision that you were prepared to make and, you know, the reassurance that you gave to your mum, you know, in the early days. Through doing these podcast interviews, when I've spoken to people who've been through quite traumatic situations, there's a theme that seems to emerge in that people... I think when you're the one in the centre of the crisis, of the chaos, it's that person that's often reassuring everybody else rather than the other way around, which I find really interesting. Yeah, and I think that even goes on to now because I have other issues now. I know my kidneys are failing and my family worry about me all the time. My mum suffers terribly worrying about me and I'm Mm. the one to always say, I'm absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. I'm more active than most able-bodied people Mm, that's air mm. quotes I'm doing there Um, (laughs) I get more out of life than a lot of people do that have got perfectly fit young Mm. able bodies so why are you worrying about me I'm gonna outlive everybody I think you know when your time's up don't you my time isn't up yet I've got loads left good on you Hazel (laughs) I'm glad to hear that may I ask you a question feel free to tell me that you don't want to answer it I've read somewhere that people can still feel their missing glimpse I can definitely still I can feel it right now it's sat underneath your desk here and I can wiggle my toes I'm doing it right now what is that it's pins and needles well your brain the nerves that would have sorted that out for you are still there they just end a little bit shorter don't they you know you still would have flexed those particular muscles in your calf to move your toes well the brain knows that it's sending the signal in that direction so it just automatically expects a signal back and i can definitely feel does it ever itch yes quite often itches i quite often go down and itch my calf muscle when it was itchy in hospital what they did was when i was lying on bed they'd put a mirror between my knees and so i could look in and see my other foot Mm. And then I could itch my other foot and it would relieve the one that wasn't there. Really? Yeah. When I'd gone back to work, I actually had a few mirrors made and, and took them to the hospital with little stands on for people just for that. So they just, they had one sort of bathroom mirror that they were trolling around all the different Aww. wards. So I had a few made for them. That's but great. 
really helps, yeah. A real practical way to deal with it. Yeah, you know, yeah. Psychological your, your brain can see you itching it, it kind of... Yeah, yeah, it really does it help. That yeah. So obviously your accident was a real pivotal point in your life and yeah. it affects everyday life. How did it affect life? What were the practicalities and how were they different and how did you cope with that? We lived in a house that had a very steep drive and then, you know, a normal semi-detached house with um, with stairs in. And that wasn't practical for me anymore because I was having to go up and down the stairs on my bottom. Mm. And then a range of boxes and tubs and chairs at the top of the stairs for me to work my way up. You can't take a wheelchair up and down the stairs. So I had to have one upstairs and one downstairs. This was before I got a prosthetic leg. And getting me in and out of the house, it wasn't something... I couldn't leave the house on my own. So I had to be bounced down some steps into the garage and then down the driveway... You know, I ended up in the hedge at the bottom a couple of times because it was so steep. Mm. I'm trying to hold on to the wheels burning through my fingers with gloves and my husband's trying to hold on to the back of my wheelchair. He's a little bit shorter than me, my husband. I would say I'm, I'm stronger than him and a lot bigger than him. So he had a job to do to look after me. And the practicalities of just him going back to work, you know, he'd have to make sure I had everything around me so I didn't have to move around too mm-hmm. much. And it was simple things that I really missed, things like vacuuming the house. Yeah. It was so difficult to do from a wheelchair. Going shopping, little tiny things, just thinking to yourself, I could do with a wee. Mm. Right, to go for a wee now, I've got to get out of this sofa, which is a bit too squishy for a person that needs to get into a wheelchair. I've got to get into this wheelchair, navigate round the house, which the doors aren't quite wide enough, and watch I don't wrap my knuckles. Get off onto a box at the bottom of the stairs, onto the stairs. Go on my bottom, up all these stairs. Get on the next three boxes. Get onto another chair. Go through the bathroom door without hitting my knuckles again, and then try and get onto the toilet. And then take my trousers off, whilst I'm on the toilet, and then do it all in reverse. And you sit there and go, I don't want a wee now. The simplest things, you know, you want to use the bathroom now, you'll stand up and go and use the bathroom and come back. Absolutely fine. But as a wheelchair user, little things like, even when I was on crutches, I go and make a coffee. Well, how am I going to get the coffee back to the living room? I'm on crutches. Mm. So you can't do things without someone else to help you. And that really brings your mental, your self-worth down. How do you cope with that? I was talking to my mum about this at the weekend because I've been laid up for four days with food poisoning. I was incapacitated, feeling very solid for myself. But I was talking to my mum about when she broke her leg. And as you've just described, she'd be stuck on her back all day and couldn't do anything. But these are obviously time-limited conditions. We know it's four days or at the worst it's going to be six, maybe eight weeks. How do you cope when you know that actually this is forever each time you do something you find an easier way to do it so if you go into a new house it looks you know insurmountable and then you find a little way to do something then you find a better way Mm. and all of a sudden it becomes normal you know you stop thinking oh I've got to get off this chair and then in there you just do it because that's the normal way you do it and the longer you do it it becomes the normality so I was saying the normality for you is I'll get up use the bathroom come back well for me the normality is slightly Mm -hmm. different is it like a series of challenges almost it is at first yeah and then it just becomes the what's normal and you forget how easy it was before I I don't use a chair very often now I have my prosthetic leg but even so for me to think even this morning I'm going to wear tights right that looks ridiculous one of your legs is the wrong shape (laughs) it's funny you say that but when you came into the kitchen this morning i just saw two legs yeah but i've looked in the mirror and gone oh my goodness what are people gonna think and some days i can think i don't care what people think and other days i think i'm gonna go back and put some trousers on depends how strong you're feeling and even even now you even now yeah i can sit in the bath and cry my eyes out Mm -hmm. when looking at my legs and Mm -hmm. then my husband comes in and says do you want your back washing and it's always yes but I'd hope to have some bubbles in the bath so that he can't see my legs. And that's ridiculous because he loves every inch of me. Mm. It doesn't matter that, you know, scars. Mm. These are battle scars and I should look at them and feel proud that I've come through this mm-hmm. incredible life-changing thing. But in some ways, it's not really changed my life, has it? My life's normal. You know, I've got up this morning, let the dogs out for a wee, had a coffee with my mum, you know, gone to sort the chickens out, things like that got in my car and come to chat with you that's a perfectly normal thing to do isn't it it is but i'm not a paralympic athlete yeah but i don't think of myself as a paralympic athlete (laughs) just think of myself as my job is archery (laughs) what do you think that's about you know that because it's obviously been quite a significant period of time since your accident yeah is it that you're still processing that you're still working through is it about acceptance yeah it is acceptance you can't go back can you i can't grow a leg 
They're not doing stem cell research on regrowing limbs. You have got to just accept it and move forward. And some days I don't accept it. Some days, mm. you know, I say, I cry all day and think, I want my leg back. But that's a ridiculous thing to say. It's never coming back. Mm. What I've got is this. Move on. Mm. As part of that kind of recovery process, do you receive that kind of emotional and psychological support as part did of your it first, recovery? And it's there if I want it. And for the first couple of years, I did see a psychologist and she was fabulous because she also had one leg although she was born like that she knew how it felt mm -hmm. and speaking to someone that knows because you can't describe it to anybody mm -hmm. but someone that actually knows how it feels and it helps being on the para squad because people have got all different types of illnesses injuries diseases and just differences mm -hmm. and you speak to people in all different sports and a lot of people are amputees and you can chat to them and they go i totally relate yeah one of our athletes is a fabulous girl called jody one of her hands didn't form properly in the womb so she's got a lovely little wiggly thumb and what she calls her nubbins mm. she's gorgeous she taught somebody from the australian team last year how to tie a shoelace wow because he had a similar condition and he couldn't tie his shoelaces he couldn't tie his shoelaces and she taught him i think it was the australian team isn't that lovely yeah amazing that you can meet someone from across the world and help them with an issue he must be a really tight-knit fraternity of people it is, and of course it's people you spend most of your life with because if you're not with them through the week training, you're with them at weekend or you're away competing and you're with them all the time, you become mm. your family, you know. Mm. I think I'm more of the anti-Hazel, <laughs> can be a bit of an agony aunt and that's great, that's where I fit, I love that. But you've got a wider family as well because when you go abroad, there's people from all different countries, all sorts of disabilities, you make friends and even though you can be up against them in competition, you're still buddies, mm. you're still friends. Yeah, sure, sure. In your personal life, do you find that having a prosthetic leg, people treat you differently? Not in my personal life, no. Perhaps people who don't know you? I usually wear trousers so people wouldn't know I've got mm. a limb missing. If I'm using my wheelchair, yes, absolutely, people treat me completely differently, like I'm an idiot. That's really awful. But even in 2019? Yes. If I need to use my wheelchair or my scooter, I'm treated as though I can't think for myself. There's a leg missing. I've wow. not had a frontal lobotomy. And, and is that is that misguided? You know, is it a lack Maybe of education? Maybe it is. I think What's people that? tend to talk down to you. And I think it's just, it's almost as if you're a child. And I think people are trying to be kind. Mm. Would you like any help with it? Would you want me to? No, I'm absolutely fine, thank you. You know, some people do want help and some people really resent needing help. So everybody's different. Every person that uses a wheelchair is going to think in a different way. Mm. But I would say one thing we all stand together with is don't talk down to me. I'm not stupid. Yeah. I just happen to be sitting down. Yeah. You don't need to treat me like a complete imbecile because I'm sitting down. You're sitting down now, but I don't mm. talk to you like you're a fool. It's fascinating that you say that because, you know, I like to consider myself a really compassionate person, but... You know, I guess there are times where, you know, through my previous job, I must have come across as, for want of a better word, patronising maybe or condescending. Yeah. And actually, probably what most of us are doing in some, as I used the word before, misguided way, trying to help. Yeah. So what is the best way to help, Hazel? What do we do in those situations? Just ask. If I'm in the supermarket and I see you struggling to reach for something. Just say, do you need any help? You don't need to go, are you OK? Right. Just say, do you need any help? Yeah, OK. As you would say to any normal person, someone yeah. that's maybe a bit shorter, can't reach the top shelf, you would just say, yeah. can I help you? Yeah. You wouldn't go, are you OK? Like the yeah, person okay. was a child. OK. Do you know what's really interesting? <clears throat> I don't know if you read Jack Reacher, Lee Child, Jack Reacher. No, I haven't read it. Brilliant amazing series of books he's the man i'm waiting to meet that's my <laughs> husband i said that and his character reacher is apparently based on the fact that lee child's a tall guy like ah, you and i okay. and he was a reacher in the supermarket right. he would constantly be asked can you reach that for me yeah i get asked that all the time <laughs> me yeah. too me too anyway i digress going through this period of recovery what do you think was your lowest point my lowest point was coming home from the hospital and realizing that my house was completely unsuitable for me and we'd only lived there for six months we moved in in the april and this happened in september in fact we're only a couple of days away from my alive aversary is what we call it when we've had an accident that could have killed us it's my alive aversary 10th of september so is that my was 15th alive aversary yeah wow so we'd only lived there for a short time and husband and i bought this 
my husband and I had bought this lovely little house in Glossop. We'd moved out of Stockport, which was getting a little bit too busy for us, and people were trying to steal the bikes, the car was getting damaged. We wanted to move somewhere nice and quiet where we could have a dog and go walking in the countryside and get some mountain bikes, and it just... When I got home from hospital, I realised that that had been taken. Mm-hmm. Those bits had been taken. I couldn't ride my mountain bike. I didn't know if I'd be able to ride a motorbike again. And that sounds crazy that I would want to, but I really did. We couldn't go out walking the dog together, albeit temporary. I felt like that had been taken. I couldn't use my house as I wanted to. And I remember I'd got home and the Christmas tree was up and it wasn't how I wanted it. And it didn't feel like my house because things weren't where I'd put them because I'd been gone for so long and things had moved around. Of course they had. And my mum had been there helping and my husband's mum had been there helping and they'd put my tree up and I just looked at it and thinking, that looks pathetic. Because I'm a tree snob. Are you? I'm quite... God, don't come round here You can't be with children, can you? But I am a tree snob. It's got to be in the right place. It's got to be... Please tell me you don't buy new baubles every year. Oh, no, no, no. Because I know people that buy new baubles every year and have a scheme. That's ridiculous. My tree's like, yeah, well... Well, you've got children. You've got to have Lego on there. (laughs) And bits of paper. (laughs) Flammable angels. But mine's got to be, you know, really how I want it and it wasn't and it sounds pathetic saying it out loud but I got home and the tree wasn't how I wanted it I cried my eyes out but surely that's not actually about the tree oh it's nothing to do with the tree it was about I haven't been home for three months my puppy dog who was tiny when I left because I say she was at the vets I was going to pick her up she was being neutered she didn't know who I was and I couldn't use my house how I wanted to use it. Everyone had had to lift me into my own house. It was awful. That was my lowest point, definitely. So, as an emotion, is that more anger than fear? Oh, I was furious. I was furious. It wasn't fear because I knew that I was going to get a prosthetic leg eventually and be able to walk around the house and, you know, go back to... Well, I thought I was going to go back to my previous life. That didn't quite work out like that. Mm. I have a better life now. But mm. at the time, I was just furious. How dare someone come in and move my ornaments around and put my tree up for me and Mm. how awful it was and it wasn't fair. What a ridiculous statement that is. It's not fair. Nothing's fair, is it? Life isn't fair. You get what you've got and you move on with it. You make lemonade, don't they say? I think a lot of people feel like that sometimes. And it's actually the whole thing about fairness is if you're not careful, an overwhelming emotion that can really take a hold of your life if you're not careful. Yeah. So how did you turn that corner then? Tell me about a specific time or an incident maybe when you started to see a bit of a chink of light. I had a friend that wasn't working at the time and so she came to be my carer and she stayed with me for six months because Rick had to go back to work. He'd been off Mm. work for three months. He couldn't have any more time off. And so I was in the house on my own for a couple of weeks. I remember my dogs going out in the garden. I'd thrown a ball from the back door into the garden and he'd jumped and he'd gone up into a tree and he'd got his front leg caught in the nook of a tree. I couldn't get out of my chair to go and save him. He was screaming. I was at the back. I went and opened the front door shouting at the top of my lungs for someone to come and help me. The neighbour ran over and released the dog and that was a real low point. My friend Diane came to stay through the daytime as Rick was leaving for work she was coming in and she just helped me do everything and she's you know sturdy girl we went shopping we went for lunch and it was like yes I can cope now I'm not holding my husband back yeah when he comes in I've made dinner it was such a big deal he was having to work and then provide for me and then clean and wash and cook and do all those things and we'd gone from being married in the march and saying all those vows in sickness and in health. And 18 months later, that in sickness and in health vow came in really, really quickly, didn't it? And I just felt, my God, he's got to be a carer now, not a husband. But then when my friend came in and started helping me around the house, we were starting to move forward then. Mm. And we were going to appointments where this is what your leg's going to look like. And then I had this little blow-up leg with a cage on one day to walk down a corridor in. And the moment I stood up and I felt my true height again, which is six foot tall, I was like, yes, yes, it's going to be okay. I'm back. I'm back, absolutely. I was going to ask a question, actually, Hazel, and, you know, I'm not asking you for specific details, but one likes to assume that when you go through this kind of incident that there is some kind of mythical organization that sits in the background that all of a sudden puts everything in place so that you can financially afford to exist that the insurance kicks in that you know you obviously can't work your husband's got to go out to work but you're at home then you start going out for lunch and you've got things to do how on earth do you cope financially in those situations does insurance kick in straight away no 
insurance doesn't kick in straight away. We had to fight for my insurance. We really had to fight. It took a couple of years. But in the meantime, I worked for an extremely fantastic company, the Mirror and Picture Factory in Stockport. Give them a plug. Good day carried on paying me my wages on the understanding that when I got my insurance back, I'd return that. So I had sickness pay, but they also said, we're going to keep paying you monthly your wage and then you can just return it to us when you've got your insurance money through. What amazing people. And it was so, so grateful. Also, we'd paid for our wedding the 18 months previously on a credit card and had PPI yeah. and that paid the credit card off. So you're a PPI good story. Yes, yes, it does work. So financially, we were okay. We weren't yeah. loaded, but we yeah. were okay. And when the insurance came through all those years later, not all those years, a couple of years later, we had a fantastic insurance company that were all bikers. All the guys in there were bikers. So right. they had a good angle on what used to happen in insurances. If you had a motorbike accident that wasn't your fault, you'd only get 75% of the payout because you were on a motorbike. So you accept 25% of the blame for riding a motorbike. What? I know, I know. Well, this insurance company managed to squash that and quash that rule for me, which was brilliant. I got 100% of the payout, which was a million pounds. And it sounds an awful lot of money, doesn't mm. it? We paid our mortgage. I bought a bungalow. I rented the other house out so that I didn't have to work. Mm -hmm. I had a little bit of income from mm -hmm. the other house. I started doing all silly things, a little bit crazy, you know. Oh, I'm going to buy this shop and turn it into a potting shed. I'm going to be a dog groomer. I'm going to... And it was great because I got to explore all these mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. things that what do I want to do in life? And I'd lost a couple of sports. I'd lost cycling. We did scuba diving and I'd kind of lost a little bit of that. But then I started trying different things. So I carried on with the scuba diving. Started doing my assistant instructor course and, you know, all that with one leg and it was fine mm. it was absolutely fine in that realm you're equal to everybody else of course you're weightless in water absolutely absolutely I tend to go in circles at first but i had hand fence so that was right <laughs> <laughs> i thought i'm gonna learn how to snowboard spent two hours on my bottom and then realized skiing would be better so i learned how to ski would never have done that the yeah. things i've done because of it yeah because the bloody mindedness of i'm not gonna let this you tell me i can't do something i'm gonna want to do it more so when did archery come into your life then? Archery came in quite early, actually. Somebody said to me, why do you have a go at archery? It's all upper body. So I did. And I liked it. I liked the course. I bought all the gear. But then when I started going as a club member, I thought, I'm a bit lonely. It can be a bit clicky. And it was a bit, I use this phrase too much, it's a bit beardy-weirdy. <laughs> beardy-weirdy. Yeah, so it seemed a bit sort of old fellas eating biscuits on a Tuesday night. <laughs> in the clubhouse drinking tea and I of course not that there's anything wrong with that for any no old fellas with oh. beards who like i'm right there with them now <laughs> i'm right there with them i'm telling you it gets under your skin but i was only 33 or something like that 34 this isn't me is it is it i like the idea of archery but i didn't really enjoy the club aspect and then i was over in hayfield at a summer show and amazing had, place i know fantastic and had a go at archery on their little have a go thing, um, the guys from Buxton. And they said, you've done this before. I said, I have, I've got all the gear, but I haven't got a club. And they convinced me to join them. And they were great. They had all different ages of yeah. archers there. And my husband was driving me back and forward. They dragged him into it reluctantly. Now he's an avid archer as well. And then a couple of years later, I saw this Facebook thing, which you mentioned earlier about Archery GB were looking for ladies that could shoot my type of bow had a disability and they were looking for people that could train hard enough to maybe go to the Rio Olympics in 2016 and I went along to this thing at Lillishall which is the home of Archery GB in Telford and that was in March and by May I was on the squad. Wow. I was training with the squad full-time and in July, we went to the European Championships and I came back with a bronze medal. So wow. it was absolutely whirlwind bonkers. Were you like, what on yeah. earth? Yeah, I had. What's that syndrome that people have when they imposter shouldn't? Imposter syndrome. That's the one, yeah. Complete imposter syndrome. I still have it a little bit sometimes. Uh, quite a lot, really. Apparently, 70% of the population do. Oh, that's all right then. You're not alone. Great. <laughs> I feel so much better. <laughs> yeah. And it's gone from there. I had a horrible injury in 2015 where I burst a disc in my neck, which had to be removed Ouch. like a week before we went to the European, oh, probably about two days before we went to the World Championships where we needed to win quota places for Rio. And by the time we got round to Rio, I just wasn't well enough, just yeah. hadn't picked up my style enough to go. And another lady went, did great. This time, I really feel like it's my turn this time. 
I'm looking at you and thinking, it's your turn this time. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever expect that, you know, this is where you'd end up? No. No, I used to say to my mum when I was little, I'm going to do something with my life, mum. <laughs> and then ended up in a factory job and things like that and thought, what a stupid thing to say. I'm going to do something with my life. And all of a sudden, oh, I'm doing something with my life. And my mum scrapbooks everything I do. And when I'm feeling a bit down, she gets the first scrapbook out from that first year that I went to GB. And I look through it and I think, wow, how far have I come? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. What a journey. Mm -hmm. I interviewed the blind woodturner, a.k.a. Mr. Chris Fisher, Shout out to Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Nicola. Hope you're doing well. And he explained about his blindness and going blind over a matter of weeks very quickly. And he says now that he would not want his sight back because of what it's given him in his life. Yeah. Would you agree with that sentiment? Definitely. And I've said quite a lot of times, losing my leg is one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I'm not just saying that for something, you know, shocking to say. It is because without it, what would I be doing now? I'd be living in the same house in Hadfield, mm. struggling along with money, going out for bike rides and doing nothing really. And look how amazing my life is. Mm. It's incredible. I just Great never would have had that. The things that I've done because of it. And I'm not just talking about archery. Learning to ski for a start, you know, it's just some of the things I've got chatting to you. I met Catherine Granger a few months back. Mm. The people that I've been able to talk to, the people lives that have been able to affect by chatting to them you know other disabled people that have been allowed to go along and just chit chat with and give them a lift and mm. I would never have been able to do that I've got this little pedestal to shout from now I've got a little soapbox never had mm. a soapbox before now I can hopefully help a couple of other people and I guess for people like me who've not been through something as traumatic as this we would be fools not to learn from your learning you know, we don't have to accept you mediocrity. Don't, yeah. We don't have to accept if we're bored. You know, there's always stuff that we can go out and do and go out and challenge ourselves and change our lives. Is that the worst saying in the world, I'm bored? Mm. In this life, you know, the amount of things that we've got to do, if you go back 100 years, maybe people could have thought I'm bored, even mm. though they were busy, hard workers. And now everything's done for us. Everything's computerised and made easy for us. And we've got the audacity to sit and go, I'm bored. Mm. How dare we? Yeah. When there's that whole huge... Look at this library we're sitting in. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Look at that view outside. You can't see. I'm sorry, guys. You can't see this fabulous view outside the window. How dare we say, I'm bored? Mm. I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. So talking then a little bit about, you know, going back to this point about you wouldn't change it. Forgiveness. Number one, I guess my question would be, again, feel free not to answer if it's too personal. Do you forgive the man who was driving the van? And secondly, have you ever had the chance to make your peace with him or he to make his peace with you? Because he must want to. No, that hasn't happened. But let me ask you this as a question, Anson. Have you ever pulled out when you really shouldn't have pulled out and had to wave your hand at the driver behind you and say sorry? Yeah, of course I have. That's all he's done. Mm. He's pulled out when he really shouldn't have pulled out. He hasn't checked over his shoulder. He knows that he's knocked somebody off their bike mm. and just looking at, I mean, he tried to deny it was his fault at the side of the road. And I think a lot of people go, oh, hands up, it wasn't my fault, it wasn't my fault. But I bet you any money he thinks about that from time to time and thinks, wow, I really hurt mm. somebody. Mm. And I bet he checks over his shoulder before mm. every move. We've all made silly mistakes and we're lucky if we haven't had a car accident or whatever or made somebody swerve around us. Mm. We're all really lucky if mm. we haven't done that. We've all had little mistakes. If you're a driver and you've made a mistake at some point, nobody drives perfectly. Mm. So what's the point of hanging on to hate? Yeah, wise words, Hazel, wise words. So being an elite sports person, Hazel, <laughs> she's, she's smiling, looking, who, me? How do you cope with that kind of perfectionism in the sporting arena? Because... You know, we're always taught, yes, it's about being the best, but actually, you know what? It's also about effort and how much you put in and all that kind of stuff. But actually, the gig that you do now really is about being the best. And how do you cope when you don't win? Well, you've got to make mistakes, haven't you? You've got to make mistakes and move forward. And don't win all. There's only one gold medal in any event you go to. So when I say I won my first gold medal this year, mm -hmm. and it's nearly, it's five and a half years since I started. Wow. That was my first gold medal. You know, you can't win them all. There's only one gold medal in my category. There might be 36, 40 people going for that gold medal. You can't win every gold medal. <laughs> <laughs> it's more about, I think with archery, it's more about can I shoot better score than I shot last time? Can I get a personal best? Yeah. 
and a lot of the time we're saying that we're shooting competitions in this country against people that are able-bodied so a lot of the time it's how well did Ed match up against the guys that are fit and healthy and young because obviously I'm 47 and not quite so fit and healthy. You look pretty fit and healthy to me. Does that matter in archery the fact that you're 47? No, it doesn't matter at all. You could start shooting at four and carry on till you're 94 right, if okay. you can pull the bow back. I always figured, you know, I've not made the Olympics yet and I thought if ever I was going to do it, I'd have to become like a clay pigeon shooter or something like that. Cause well, I figured... like, a, like a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> we have time. I have time. You're always going to beat yourself up, especially at major events. If you get knocked off halfway through the event, it kind of goes in tears. You have a ranking round mm. and then you go up against various people, a bit like the World Cup. Yeah. So you can get knocked out, the elimination rounds. And I think maybe because... You get knocked out early, you're upset with yourself. I bet you are. I think the way that sports coverage has changed, not that I'm an expert in this area, but the way that sports coverage has changed over the years, I think we get to see now a lot more about the real person behind the athlete. Yeah. Was it Elise Christie, the speed skater? Yeah. You know, she was struggling with the pressure. And, you know, to me, it must almost be like the performance is 50% of the job and the other 50% is the psychology behind getting that right mindset, A, to win and B, to cope when you don't win. I'd go further than that with archery. I think the psychology is probably 75% of it. Right. They say archery is the art of repetition. Right. So you undo the same thing again and again and again. And it's the psychology of maintaining that focus through every shot to make it the same. You've got to think the same thoughts, stand in the same way, pull the same pressure back. Every single time has to be identical. And there's no such thing as perfection, mm. but it's got to be as near as damn it. Mm. It's got to be as close as possible. If you shoot a bad shot, you know why you shot a bad shot. And yeah, you're going to beat yourself up over it if it's in competition, but that's what practice is about. Mm. And just yesterday, talking to my coach and psychologist, you have to fail to learn. Absolutely. Carol Dweck, growth mindset. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to fail. And as you and I were talking about before we recorded this interview, I'm going to get a book title for you called Choke. We'll put the details in the show notes. The author, I totally forget at the moment, the book is all about how you perform under that kind of pressure. And actually, one of the key tenets of the book is that actually we don't rehearse in those kinds of pressured situations. And so we're preparing for a big test or something. Yeah, we revise and we learn what we need to, but actually we don't revise the pressure and how we cope with the pressure. Yeah, that's difficult to, to replicate. To replicate, I guess. yeah. What we tend to do is we try and put ourselves under pressure in training by maybe you put a scoreboard up so everybody that's training today can see what you're scoring during mm. your training mm. session. Or maybe you say well, today I'm going to broadcast on Facebook what I scored in training today. Mm. That's quite a lot of pressure. Yeah. You know, you can put sort of noise going on in the background. You can make sure there's lots of things yeah, happening around you. Yeah, to make the conditions you. the same. Yeah, sometimes we have like mock events during training. So we'll set all the field up so it looks like a competition with cameras and all sorts of things going mm. on, flags waving. And, but yeah, it's difficult to do that. So we've spoken a lot today about the challenges that you faced. Now, what do you consider the greatest challenge that you've overcome in your life? Depression. Right. Depression. And I still deal with depression now, but recognising it and getting help for it, that's the biggest challenge and moving forward from it, yeah. And accepting that that's what's wrong and I've got help for it and now I feel better. That's the biggest challenge. I'm so privileged that you're prepared to be so vulnerable and open and honest about that because I think that's such an empowering thing to do both for yourself but also actually for a lot of other people as well because I think, you know, to the man in the street like me, I would naively assume that overcoming a physical injury that's life-changing to the tune that you've experienced would be a bigger challenge than coping with one of the hidden conditions that you know actually and thankfully we talk about quite openly nowadays yeah. in society yeah i think losing my leg there was always a move forward from that there was always you know i'm going to get a prosthetic leg i'm going to learn to walk better the leg's going to get more healed and these prosthetic legs are going to get slightly different as I learn to walk better with them mm. and I'll be able to go back to my normal life but actually my brain had another trick up its sleeve where it was going to leave me sobbing for know, a piece of mouldy bread out the cupboard or I dropped a hair clip and it went under the chair and I can't move the chair and now I need to wreck the room 
and talk to my husband like absolute crap or be snappy with my mum and then go back in the house and cry to myself over why have I just been snappy with my mum. That's the hardest thing that I've had to deal with. Mm. Learning to walk again sounds like a really big deal and it was a big deal and I'm glad I did it but lots of people have to learn to walk again but not enough people admit that they need psychological, mental, medical help Mm. with depression. And I think a lot of people could be happier if they did admit that and went and sought help. You are an incredibly inspirational person. And I think for anybody listening who's maybe suffering at the moment or has suffered in the past from depression, what would your advice to them be? Be honest with yourself. Are you who you used to be or who you think you should be? Are you upset all the time? Are you crying over nonsense? Are you snappy? Are you hysterical? Is that you? If it isn't, go to your doctor and just be honest and say, I'm not me and really need help to get back to where I am. They don't give you a tablet that changes who you are. Mm. It might not even be tablets. It could be just you know mental guidance but if it is tablets it's to balance back your hormones and things to get you back to who you are it's not to change who you are it's to get you back Mm. and that's how I saw it I didn't see it as happy pills oh these are going to make me happy no these pills that I needed are going to get me back to where I was before Mm. this happened I'm so delighted you know that some of these ridiculous antiquated stigmas surrounding mental health are you know at long last being questioned and being banished and you know openly now in society we talk in particular about male mental health and male suicide and I think hearing from people like yourself who you know as I've just said are incredibly inspirational you know a real powerhouse of positivity and achieving amazing things on behalf of our country you know it's really wonderful to hear you talk so openly about that so thank thank you. you thank you do you think right deep question here you know I've got two little kids I find myself doing that thing sometimes at night where I put my kids to bed and, you know, I stroke their hair. And it's almost like I sabotage that moment for a second and I just think, oh, my God, I can't imagine anything ever happening to them. And, you know, I suppose it's an element of catastrophizing. You've obviously been through something that would be something that we would all absolutely be terrified of. Is there anything that we can ever do to prepare for situations like you've been through? Does catastrophizing have a purpose i guess no no purpose whatsoever you're just awfulizing your life why would you jeopardize your happiness now thinking about something that may or may not ever happen Mm. that's ridiculous some of us can't help it obviously you've got children yeah the worst thing you can ever think would happen you're going to think it but you just it's such an irrational thing in some way you're killing the moments that you've got and i always think it's a bit like when people take photographs of everything stop it stop it enjoy the moment why are you living life through a lens you're not looking at how fantastic something is right now take it in right now how amazing is this moment and what you're almost doing is blinding yourself to this moment and thinking what's the flip side of it how awful could it be why are you ruining the moment mm. and it's a bit like when people get their phones out for everything to take a picture of everything never going to look at those pictures and get that moment back what's the point i find that fascinating you know god i'm guilty of that as much as the next man yeah i am in some ways yeah i like to take pictures of when i'm away i look through my phone it's all pictures of the team and when we're away and my dogs <laughs> and i do the same what you're saying about your children and you can't compare dogs to children and know that but my dogs are and i look Listen, at I'm my a dog dogs lover. sometimes it's okay think, to compare dogs to children i can't let my dogs out in the garden without being with them because if somebody took one of my dogs mm. i'd be more devastated than losing my leg mm. so we do all awful eyes no you can't prepare for it you can't you're ruining the moment you've got stop taking pictures of everything and start opening your eyes a bit wider and going wow look at this moment and i think this comes back to the whole kind of concept of fear and worry and anxiety you know in that actually the fear and the worry is actually worse than the event itself yes Yeah, if you just told me 16 years ago, next year, Hazel, you're going to get knocked off your bike, you're going to break both legs, one of your knees going to be dislocated, uh, your nail's going to be a bit wobbly and probably going to lose one of your legs and have to learn to walk again. Oh my God, I would never have left the house. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do that. You've got to live your life. Life's short. It is. So I've got a bit of a tradition going on the show, even though I'm still in single digit episodes. I figure I have tradition. (laughs) (laughs) If I said to you to share three pieces of life advice with the listeners, and I mean, don't get me wrong, you've shared masses already. What would those three pieces of advice be? Put your phone away. Stop playing on Facebook. Stop playing on games whilst you sat there with your partner mm. or your kids or whatever. Put your phone away. 
start talking to the people around you, learn about them, ask them questions about their day and their life, stop looking at people you don't even know on Facebook and Twitter and goodness knows what and setting up pictures for Instagram to try and show how amazing your life is. Live that amazing life. Yeah, yeah. Put your phone away, that's yeah. that's definitely one of my, I need to have my own advice, I need to do that more, but I'm trying to put my phone away. Wear your best dress, use your best tea set, Use your best steak knives. What have you got them for if you're not going to use them? What's the point? Have you been in my cupboards, Hazel? Have you got them? Have you got some? Have you got I've those got nice wine glasses that you don't use because they're too nice? <laughs> what have you got them for? I've got this tea set in the cupboard. I'm too scared to use it. Why? I don't What have you got it for? I don't know. Is it for serving tea in? I'm going to use it this weekend, Hazel. Use it. Even if you just use it a weekend, you know, you don't want to use it for everyday use. Maybe you want to keep it for best. Have best as every Sunday or something. Yeah. Why you got stuff gathering dust? I'm a hoarder. I am definitely a hoarder. There's stuff in my attic that I will never even look at again, never mind use again. What's it there for? But lately I've started throwing out rubbish clothes that I've had from cheap shops. I've started buying nice things that have cost a little bit extra and I'm wearing them every day Mm. because I'm worth that. You are worth that. You are. Thank you. So are you. Thank you. I don't know what my other one would be. Try and smile more, I suppose. Like you were saying about awfulizing and mm. things. When you feel yourself awfulizing about something, think the other way around. How amazing would it be if, instead mm. of how awful would it be if. Flip it on its head. When you feel yourself starting to go, oh my God, imagine if little Johnny got sick and, oh, how would he cope? No, start thinking, imagine if little Johnny got an A&E exam next week. What would we do to celebrate? Stop awfulizing. I do all the time. I awfulize every day. I love that word. Awfulize. I don't even know if it's any real word. We'll have it. Well, it is now. We'll have it now. Catastrophizing you, I call it, won't you? That's just one up, isn't it? That's one up from awfulizing. (laughs) That's going bonkers. I'm looking at your lovely decanters there. Do you ever put alcohol in them and use them? No. I don't even know why they're there. They're beautiful. Why aren't you using them? should have sherry in them. Where's my sherry? It's not even 11 o'clock on a Friday morning, Hazel. I didn't know you were that way inclined. Six o'clock somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I don't drink, actually. <laughs> I was going to say, there's somebody from TGB listening to this, Hazel, <laughs> jotting notes furiously. <laughs> Hazel Chasey, it has been an absolute pleasure. It's and been you know, an honour. As a novice podcaster, you know, somebody who really does not know what they're doing, as you and I were talking about earlier, it really has been, you know, such a joy and a privilege. And I think we should let people into a secret that we actually recorded this twice because I really messed up first time <laughs> so thank you for your patience thank you for your support you're welcome where can listeners find out a little bit more about you they can find me on Facebook Hazel Chasty Archer or Hazel Chasty Paralympics they can find out about me at hazelchasty.com yeah put my name in find out about me get in touch say hello and I'll include all the details in the show notes as well as well as the reference to the book about choke we'll probably put a little bit in there about Carol Dweck as well the wonderful very wonderful Carol Dweck Hazel thank you so much thank you God bless you Hazel's story is one of acceptance and the fact that this is often a lifelong journey. I think we've all at some point or other made a silly mistake when we're driving and Hazel's story is sadly far too common. The fact is that life can change in a split second and none of us can ever really be prepared for that. What Hazel shows us is that it is possible to do more than just get by. We can flourish even when life seems unfair. We don't have to simply accept what has been thrown our way. We can instead choose to embrace life and every opportunity it presents us. Yes, of course, some days are going to be harder than others and we all have our ups and downs. But don't live in fear because that's usually worse than the event itself. As Hazel says... Life is short. Put your phone away and live. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast and that in some way it's added value to your life. Thank you for joining me. I've been your host, Holly Hartley. Please make sure that you tell everyone you know who might benefit from listening all about the Life Stories podcast. It's free to listen to, of course, in any app that supports podcasts. Make sure that you click like and leave a review. In the meantime, I'll see you, your amazing person you, on the next edition of the Rediscovery of Me Life 
Stories podcast. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. You are enough.